to another episode of Generational X. We have been immersed in this last week in a storm of debates and tensions and conversations about police brutality, institutionalized racism, and more, all set off by the terrible murder of George Floyd last week. Protests have dominated the headlines all around the world, and major legislation has been pushed and passed in many places in an attempt to help strengthen police reform. We'll give our takes on uh, what needs to change and how we can work toward that goal, as well as how how this will affect uh, political races. Um, joining me is, as always, Griffin Roder. Griffin, how are you? I'm doing well, Henry. How are you doing? I'm doing good, thanks. Also with us on the panel is Jack Newell. How's it going, Henry? It's going good, thanks. And back again is Eliza Cotton. Hi, Eliza. Hi, Henry. Yeah, so overall, this week has been a firestorm of just complete craziness from top to bottom. We've seen some of the biggest, you know, national movements, some of the biggest protests all around the world in places from, you know, Washington to Berlin to Tokyo, all incensed by what people feel as a completely systematic, systemically racist police department and tons of problems in our criminal justice system. So, I mean, the protests have really gotten all the headlines so far and they've been you know attended by millions of people all across the world and it seems to have been you know pushing a national conversation across that we can do better and that we can pass laws to help combat this problem jack what do you think has been the effect of these mass protests so far well yeah i think they're definitely provoking a national conversation and i think after the death of george george floyd i think everyone agreed obviously that that was a terrible event but people weren't focusing on the broader reason why that occurs. And I think these protests really helped focus the conversation. So it's not just on one person or one event, but rather on the whole system that's currently creating these problems. Yeah. I mean, Eliza, does this feel to you like a breaking point in this issue where people have just had enough and change needs to happen now? Yeah, I definitely think that, um, you're seeing um, such such massive mobilizations, um, and and we've seen we've seen obviously um, uh, mobilizations like this before. But it really uh, maybe this is optimistic, but um, it really does feel like a lot of change is coming, and a lot of people have been um, shifting and and learning a lot of um, new viewpoints, and I think that. Um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully change is coming. Yeah, I think definitely people have gotten more involved in the talking points of this. Um, Griffin, what are your thoughts on how this has changed the national perception of this issue? Well, it's definitely made more Americans aware of what is really happening uh, with regards to the police and with regards to the African-American community in this country. Um, also, as a result of the protests, there has been a heightened police response and uh, threats to send in the U.S. military to quell uh, civil unrest, which isn't necessarily tied to the protesters. But what I've what I've found is that uh, police are reacting to protests against police brutality with uh, police brutality. Right. It seems very, uh, you know, overkill in that regard. I think that. The majority of protests, the ones that I've seen, I think there was one in, I didn't go, but I, I saw pictures of one in Troy. Um, done. I was there. Oh, you were there? And yeah. maybe I'm mistaken because I wasn't there, but it seemed like a, 
really majorly peaceful event where there weren't any problems that that arised at all, really. So, um, yeah. I, I believe so. I was at the protest. There wasn't any violence, but I remember um, I had to leave the protest early. But I saw this. Um, the protesters were marching across the Green Island Bridge from Troy to uh, Green Island, and there was this police line that formed and the police were in like riot gear. They had riot shields. I think they had like batons drawn and they formed a line on the bridge uh, that many of the protesters were crossing. I'm not exactly sure what happened next, but eh, from the looks of it, it doesn't look like a violent confrontation. Yeah. And I mean, that's the important part. And I think that 95% of these protests across the country are like that, which is, neighborhood people completely peaceful people you know incensed by all this um you know terrible institutionalized and systemic racism in our police departments so and the majority of them do not break out into riots the majority of them do not result in destruction of property but um jack why do you think so much of the national conversation revolves around the few that do well i think it's it's mostly due obviously to the media's uh desire to focus on sensationalized events and provoke extreme emotions in their viewers because that's what makes them money. Uh, But yeah, as you said, I think obviously the majority of protesters have been peaceful and the examples of civil unrest that we've seen have mostly been obviously you know, at night, and it's been mostly outside groups and not actual supporters of the Black Lives Matter movement that have been right. Involved in. Yeah, even some smear groups that want to paint the Black Lives Matter movement as you know a violent group have been infiltrating the protests. Really terrible when I heard about those news stories, but um, I mean, so yeah, I mean, they're all we're all pushing for a lot of legislation to be passed. Um, Eliza, what do you think needs to be done congressionally? Uh, in terms of, you know, lawmaking to actually get the police departments back on track? Well, it's hard um, to think about. Um, obviously, there there are some um, resolutions out there. Um, I believe um, Ayanna Presley introduced a resolution with Ilhan Omar, I believe, um, condemning uh, police violence, police brutality, Um and obviously, um, you know, there's some um, anti-lynching uh, legislation that we saw it being debated in the Senate, which I think is um, excellent legis- legislation that needs to go through. Um, but I think what we're seeing um, in these protests is that a lot of the change is, is coming from the local level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that cities are pressuring um, their mayors and their district attorneys and their city councils um, to make the changes that they need, they want to see in their um, in their hometowns, and that's where we're really seeing um, a lot of the um, the big change happening. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of those uh, changes at the local level, things like you know, a lot of towns have passed banning chokeholding and strangleholding, and then requiring de-escalation and you know, require a warning before shooting and duty to intervene. I think those are some things that, you know, police departments are floating. And those are all really positive changes. And I think local governments have really stepped up in this crisis and realized that, I mean, it's any police department that can do these awful things. So it's really up to them. Um, Jack, from a legislative uh, 
perspective, what things in particular are looking at? Well, uh, as, as Eliza said, I think most of the change uh, is going to happen at the local and state level. Uh, I know that in New York State, uh, Governor Cuomo is already pushing for repeal of uh, 50A, which would make uh, police disciplinary records transparent. And I know he has um, said that he would like the uh, uh, inspector or New York State independent uh, attorney general to investigate uh, any claims of these kinds of uh, problems. Yeah, I mean, Griffin, what do you think is the best uh, are the best laws to pass to combat this? But yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I think personally, uh, the ending of qualified immunity yeah. should yeah. definitely be passed. Like the police should not have qualified immunity. And explain to our like, listeners it, what qualified immunity is for those who don't know. Um, yes, so uh, qualified immunity is in a legal sense. It's in the United States federal law. It's a form of immunity less strict than absolute. It shields government officials, so it can shield like politicians. It shields the police from being held up liable for the actions that they committed. So, um, for example, if a police officer, say, killed someone unjustly, it'll take a while for them to actually face um, consequences. They won't be held personally liable for uh, a long period of time. So if we end qualified immunity, we'll definitely see some dramatic improvements, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this does come from the legislative part, and that's what we've talked about for the last few minutes. You know, what what laws can be passed through Congress and through state and local governments? But I think a majority of the problem isn't through, you know, bad lawmakers. It isn't through a lack of legislation being passed. It's like racial biases, which are so prevalent, especially now across our country, cannot be fixed through legislation. And legislation can curb some of the drastic impacts of them. But overall, I think we more need a social change of discourse in, you know, how we view these incidents. Um, you know, the next generation of police, you know, comes up and get get goes to training and, you know, goes to goes to their job without having any kind of racial inclinations to them. I think I was reading that. Yeah, so I think overall, um, you know, the social biases, especially displayed by, you know, our youth today and displayed by some mixed reactions to these protests are what's to me. And that's, you know, I think the number one route of change that needs to come from this. But like, if we're going to talk about socially, um, Griffin, do you think... What changes do you think need to be made in school and how we educate our kids on this issue? Well, I think uh, one of the main flaws in our education system, well, first, mainly our education system is based on uh, what's called the Prussian model. So it's a method in which um, obedience is mainly tried to be implied. It's one where views that are, that views that contradict uh, the state and um, like the established point of view here in America are left out and now don't don't at me on this but I've I think in some schools especially in uh, states that aren't in New York like um, probably more prevalent in the south they don't really teach that much about like the civil rights movement and slavery they'll just say 
Well, Lincoln freed all the slaves, and then MLK uh, did his march on Washington. Segregation and racism ended. That's that's not the true story. I feel that if we include more discussions on racism in our country, whether it be through slavery, whether it be through uh, like the Jim Crow laws, segregation, black codes, redlining, lynching, we discuss that in our schools and um, open up these ideas and concepts to young students, then uh, I feel racism could definitely be significantly reduced in our society. Yeah, I mean, uh, Eliza, what's your, um, do you have any ideas about how we can curb racial tensions through school and how we talk to our youth? Yeah, well, I think that, um, like Griffin was saying, like, more comprehensive uh, education on on this history and um, the history of, like, even things like the Black Panther Party or you know, other other things that aren't really talked about that much in school. And then I think we have to um, think about um, how we can integrate it into other subjects besides um, social studies. Um, you know, a thing about the English curriculum and having more um, diverse books that we're reading. And then the other thing is more diverse um, teaching staff. I think that we need to um, make sure that uh, we are having teachers that um, are not all white, especially in our, well, everywhere, but we, the research has shown that people, um, I believe also like, um, especially for students of color, if they're learning from um, another uh, like a teacher that looks like them, it helps them to learn better overall, not even just about these issues. So I think that that is another important thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jack, what's your opinion on uh, trying to curb racial biases? Well, education? I think anything um, you think we should do in particular? I think that there should be some changes in teaching style, but I think the greater role that schools can play and have an impact on decreasing uh, police brutality and, and building community trust is by uh, setting up programs that help to intervene in a struggling student. And instead of them going through the justice system, there's alternative options for them. And I think, you know, th- there's got to be more safety nets for students that are falling through the cracks and there's got to be less of a uh, emphasis on the justice system at that age. Yeah, I'm, I totally agree with you. I think that there is a class offered in school called uh, race and identity. And while I haven't taken it yet, I've heard that it's, you know, really focused about, um, you know, the conversation we're having now, which is how do we curb racial biases in society? And, and I was on, um, Eliza was on this call too. I was on a call for a political club uh, earlier this afternoon and they were talking about how the kids who want to take this race and identity class in our school aren't the kids who need to take that class, really. So I think there definitely needs to be more uh, education uh, for, you know, the kids who are reluctant to learn about this stuff because those are probably going to be the 
probably most most likely going to be the perpetrators of the problem in the next generation. So overall, uh, yeah, in, in places like English and social studies, having conversations about race and conversations can do our part in our society is really definitely important. Um, and Griffin, do you think a culture change? Yeah, Jack. Well, I was just going to say, obviously, we come from a very uh, Fuller's point of view. We have a great school district, uh, but a lot of these programs that we're talking about and initiatives aren't able to be completed by a lot of you know schools that aren't in as good of a position as us. And to allow those things to happen, we do need legislative action to allow more funding to go to our education system. Well. Can right, I... and the state, which makes, yeah. Go ahead, Henry, and then I, want, I would like to add something. Oh, no, uh, yeah. Well, I was, I was just going to say that the state's, um, the educational curriculum, obviously has a role to play in changing, you know, the books that are mandatory to read, you know, the global history Anyway, so there's definitely a role in state government yeah, to play in that, but like, what were you going to say, Eliza? Um, when Jack is talking about, like, funding um, for those programs, those, like, um, early intervention programs that are really um, community-based and trying to um, disrupt the school-to-prison pipeline. Um, what we're seeing is that a lot of these like um, grassroots um, organizations um, are calling for um, a reallocation of funding away from the police um, and, and into these community programs. Um, and, you know, I think that's something that is gaining a lot of ground right now um and i agree with it um which is like the idea that um we can keep um our communities safe through um these like early uh upstream uh uh interventions these solutions that don't require um having like armed police officers um trying to fix a problem that that cannot be solved by um, armed police officers. Yeah. Right, yeah. I do think that, you know, funding should be diverted into places like equitable housing, equitable education. I'm a fan of charter schools here and there that can, you know, increase um, the levels of education kids are getting in minor. You know, maybe isn't good enough, right? And isn't good enough to, you know, give kids the support system they need. So educational equity needs to be a big part of this. Um, but like police departments too, you know, need to have a culture changes in them. Like Griffin, what do you think needs to change inside police training and police departments? Well, definitely the use of lethal force. Firstly, use of lethal force should be like a method of last resort. Now, a police officer is not just equipped with a gun. Usually they're, they're pretty much always armed with non-lethal well, in theory, non-lethal weapons that with, um, like, perhaps a baton or a taser or pepper spray. And while they aren't very humane, they they won't kill you unless used in excess. So if those were used before a gun, um, that's definitely critical. Now, you could provide more funding into training them, although I'm not sure if that would necessarily work. Uh, I feel that sometimes really with cops killing people, they might just really be bad people on the inside. They might just be appealing to animal-like instincts, but I think definitely if you require like a warning, as was mentioned earlier before, 
shooting and use shooting as a last resort. Um, or now I believe I saw this on CNN a few years ago, but there was this little attachment where it almost looks like a toy, but you attach it to a handgun and it fires a bullet. However, the bullet is fired at a much slower speed. And if you get hit with it, it hurts a lot. It feels like getting hit with a baseball at like 90 miles an hour. However, it's unlikely to kill you. It just hurts a lot. And it's used um, in instances in which the suspect is far away, um, armed, but not like directly a threat. So I think that could definitely be used in order to reduce instances of police brutality. Yeah, and I mean, like, ending the militarization of police. Oh, yes, definitely. I think it's a must. You see all these uh, small-town police with huge, abnormal budgets, and they just get to, you know, spend on all the tanks, you know, and all the guns they want, and all the equipment. I'm pretty sure, yeah, I'm pretty sure that the uh, Los Angeles Police Department has a bigger budget than uh, North Korea's entire military budget, and it's North Korea we're talking about. (laughs) They spend, like, almost everything on military, and they still have a smaller military budget than L.A. as a police budget. Right, you see police officers, like, you know, decked to the brim with all the newest gear and equipment and, you know, healthcare officers. Like, they're better equipped. They're better, they're better equipped than, like, the Marines in Afghanistan. Right, there are so many systematic problems there. Um, Yeah, so police departments need... Yeah. On on the subject of the demilitarization of the police, uh, it's actually the Trump administration, uh, under Obama, there was a provision that allowed... um, Police to buy surplus military equipment, and that was um, repealed under the Obama administration, I believe, and the Trump administration uh, allowed that again, and that's part of the reason why we're seeing this. Wow, I mean, yeah, uh, I also think that definitely having you know my more minorities present in the hierarchy of police departments. I remember a lot of people were mad a year ago when um, a really qualified African American man got passed over to be the chief of police in New York City. Right. So I think that, you know, having more minorities in leadership roles in police departments is a must, but it's a real multi-step, multi-layered problem. Definitely. Um, I'm kind of curious to get people's opinions on this. Uh, the Minneapolis Police Department um, pretty much disbanded, uh, I believe, yesterday and uh, controversial thing. Some people say that you need policing. Some people say that it's a really bad organization and then boot and you know, basically, there's really no police department in Minneapolis anymore. Eliza, what's your opinion on that kind of drastic step? I think that um, I think that it is a good step, um, and I think that um, it is what these um, organizers have have been demanding. Um, and I think that um, you know, I've seen a lot of people that say, like, you know, if you want to talk about um, what uh police abolition um might look like um frankly in a lot of uh suburban towns like the one that um all of us live in uh you know we we don't have um or i personally uh don't have a lot of uh contact with the police um and we have these like very uh well-funded um programs and so i think that um Obviously, it will be interesting to see what systems uh, are implemented, 
and we're not ending racism by um, ending the police. So, you know, any system that's going to be implemented has to be implemented under the guise of how are we going to make sure that it doesn't uh, become the same thing, um, the same problematic racist um, system. But I think that I think that it is a, a good step towards more um, healthy community-based safety Yeah, solutions. I look at it, um, I mean, I'm slightly more moderate, I think, on this issue in that I'm all for huge structural reform of police departments. Overall, I think we need to have a really serious conversation about the insane police budget, try to divert that money to things like community policing, rehabilitation centers for prison prisoners, uh, equitable housing and education, better health care services and more. But um, I don't know if I, I think the step is we need action, right? I'm glad that they're thinking about action. I don't know if this is a bit overstepping a bit, but I'm not sure. I just hope they have an answer uh, for people who, you know, if someone breaks into their house or robs a bank, I hope they have an answer on how they're going to deal with that. I mean, I'm not the most well-informed about the specifics about this program, but I hope that, you know, that still exists because you need basic law enforcement in a town when emergencies happen and we need overhauls of police departments. So it's going to be an interesting test case to see, I think, how this works. But I'm slightly skeptical. But if it works, then sure. So, yeah, Jack, I think this largely depends on the the next steps that uh, Minneapolis takes, because we saw, I believe it was in Camden, uh, the city disbanded their police department, but they what they did was they just required police officers to reapply and instituted structural change, but they, you know, still kept the police, obviously. And I think something like that could be good in Minneapolis, but it, it's clear that we obviously need police uh, responding to violent uh, crimes like rape and, and gang violence and assault. And there's no reality I can see where that's not present yeah, and I'm actually really interested to, see, to hear what Camden did. Uh, I think that if Minneapolis can turn out like that, it's definitely an, an initiative that we should, you know, all consider. Um, but, you know, let's see, because I'm glad there's structural change. I think that every police you know, department should really have a serious conversation about, you know, what parts of it should be slashed. Um, you know, where are we going to put that funding so it doesn't oppress people and, you know, starts defending people and protecting them instead. But, um yeah, it's really interesting. Griffin, do you have any thoughts about Minneapolis? Eh, I'm just going to see what they do. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah, I guess it's a, it's a test case. But let's see how it turns out. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we were talking about our own town right now and how our police department in Bethlehem, where we're recording the podcast and where I think a lot of our listeners are located too, you know, how our police department hasn't had any major problems yet, but isn't really the most with us um does anyone have any thoughts about you know how in bethlehem we're handling this situation overall as a the school district as a community um well one thing about bethlehem is uh we are not a very racially diverse town uh we are pretty white although there are some minorities that attend bethlehem central high school and there are definitely several minority families in this town, but we are at least 85% white, if not more. However, uh, I feel like as a town, 
Uh, we are a very tight knit town, in my opinion, and I think that if you like, you go on social media and you see how many like members of our community are united in standing up against police brutality and systemic racism. I think that that really shows a lot about how great of a community. Yeah, we I mean, are. I mean, I've been on social media a lot, and I've seen people who never really shown an interest around in the world around them, you know, suddenly really caring, I guess, and really, you know, interested to put their two cents in on this issue and, you know, fund some initiatives and do some stuff like that. So that's been encouraging. I think that I know right after this podcast, I'm going to head over to the four corners. I know, I think it's your mom, Eliza, right? Who's uh, yeah. organizing vigil for George Floyd. And I think a lot of people are going to that. Oh, it's I think it is, right. Yeah. Yep. yep. So yeah, that, I mean, that'll be good That's to see sick. like our whole community, you know, unifying with that cause. But, you know, there are still problems. I remember I just heard recently earlier today that our school principal sent out an email um, talking about how hard it is for police right now and how hard their lives are, which maybe didn't go the way he wanted it to go. Right. And well, at least he at least he didn't send it in the Happy Friday. email. Yeah, but it was definitely a questionable decision. So like there's work there. Yeah. And then there was also, you know, things like um, the Bethlehem P- Police Department, you know, canceled a meeting with our political club Wednesday for no reason. That was supposed to, you know, be interactive and talk to them about the problems. So that was also, you know, confusing. And uh, did we just lose somebody? Uh, we lost Eliza. Right. Yeah. Oh. But, um... Yeah, um, during these technical difficulties, we'll just keep talking. But overall, a community, we could be doing more, but the citizens who really do care are making a difference. I do think that's good. Uh, yeah, sorry for the hold up. But yeah. Yeah, so as far as, as, far as things we can do to uh, make uh, police departments better, I think... Training is, is important, and I think Griffin kind of mentioned earlier, there's going to be some of those really, really violent, racist, bad cops, and we need to re- root them out. But I think one bigger issue, potentially, is that there's a lot of cops that you know don't share those views, but they're in a culture where they're not accountable for their actions, and they're protecting each other, and uh, obviously some police unions need reform in that way. And I think that's an issue that I think we really need to focus on and one where we could make a lot of progress. Yeah. I mean, if you're in an organization that really has a history of racial biases, and even if you don't initially carry those biases, like that kind of culture is going to be absorbed into how you perform your duties, how you do your job. And overall, like, I mean, a lot of people are saying all cops are bad and not all. I mean, there are, there are good cops out there. Definitely. But we can't focus on them until we, you know, weed out the bad cops and find a way to, you know, make our police department overall unifyingly non-racist. Uh, yeah, Henry, Henry. So when people say all cops are bad, they're not really saying it based on people. They're, they're mainly saying it based on, like, the job of being a cop means enforcing an unjust system. That's what they're trying to refer to. Oh, I to. think I might have misunderstood the it general, then, yeah. The, the general is... But the generalization of an occupation and generalization of any group of people is obviously dangerous, and I think it's counterproductive. I think we obviously need reform, but th- that kind of 
rhetoric is not necessarily what we need right now. We need we need actual action and reform. We don't need what that's. Yeah, no, I don't think that. No, I mean, it's obvious that not every single cop is bad. And I don't think we should be peddling that message around. But at the same time, you need to emphasize the cops who are doing a terrible job much more than the cops who are doing a good job. Because if if your rebuttal to an argument about police brutality is there are good cops, then you're undermining and you're devaluing the cops that are wrecking havoc on their communities and minorities every day. So it's really a complicated issue. But I do think that we need to focus on, you know, as we said before, just making sure the police department is on our side. Um, so, I mean, from a political perspective, um, Eliza, how do you think uh, our federal government has handled this, including Donald Trump? Um, not great. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> I mean, we all know about him, uh, or Bill Barr, I guess, ordering uh, tear gassing of, tear gassing, by the way, um, a war crime, an international war crime, um, tear gassing of p- protesters, um, uh, so that he could go to the church and take photos, um, which I think is, you know, uh, very problematic, obviously. And I think I, I read something um, interesting. I'm not sure where I read it, but. It's so it's so different with these protests um, under Trump than any other leader because, you know, uh, typically uh, these protests happen, um, this unrest happen, and unrest happens, and so the goal uh, of the leaders is to try to, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, quell it or. Uh, by by taking action, whether superficial or not, um, to sort of uh, restore order. Um, Trump. Now it's happening. <laughs> Trump, yeah, no. So Trump is so different because he just like keeps fanning the flames. Um, and restore order, by the way, different than the like Tom Cotton fascist. No relation to me. Um, <laughs> op-ed where he like was like called the troops um but i just thought that that was interesting and that he's just so different than any other leader i mean barack obama is a uniter of people george w bush even like is a uniter of people i have no doubt that if like a republican like george w bush and mitt romney were here he'd be you know giving a unified message and giving his best to support the problems and even mitt romney is you know in protests saying black lives matter and um yeah, it kind of shows the low bar we have for Republicans that we kind of celebrate when Mitt Romney does something good. But um, yeah, I, I just don't think that the Trump response has been good enough at all, and especially the response of you know, the top law enforcement uh, general in this country, Bill Barr, who is the worst attorney general in modern U.S. history, I believe, and who, who said on the news that there is no systemic racism in our police departments. And it's like, have you been, like, where have you been this last week? Living right. under, yeah. like... Are you Patrick Starr? Are you living under a like, rock? Bill Barr is way out of touch with the world, and he's just a terrible person to be enforcing these laws right now and trying to stop you know, crime and trying to unify the people. And that's the job of an attorney general. Um, so I think that the federal response has been horrific. Jack, what do you think about how Trump has handled this? Yeah, and I, I think Trump thrives, thrives on chaos because I think that's what he believes his base will respond to. 
and what he thinks will help him win the next election, which is why I think he's trying to create this uh, this chaos because he believes it'll help him in, in I mean, the next election. Do you think it will? Do you think this, Griffin? Do you think that this uh, makes voters turn out for Joe Biden? I'm not exactly sure at the moment. I actually saw a poll not too long ago that showed. of Americans thought the burning of the uh, Minneapolis police precinct was justified. So uh, more Americans, according to that poll, believe that burning down that police station, um, they approved of the burning down of police station more than they approved of uh, Joe Biden or Donald Trump. But anyhow, I mean, this is a very tumultuous time because this is like 1968, although with a pandemic too. (laughs) So... And an economic recession as well. So this yeah. is one of the most tumultuous times in America. I never thought I would ever experience this, like, firsthand. But you never know. I think definitely he's probably going to try to campaign on, like, uh, with, with promises such as, you know, law and order. Let's take back the streets. Kind of like Nixon in 68 did. And I'm not exactly sure if there is a silent majority per se. However, I think Trump definitely does benefit from the politics of fear. And in this current political climate, there's a great deal of fear. There's a huge economic recession. A lot of people are out of work. There's a global pandemic. A lot of people are afraid that they'll get sick or their loved ones will get very sick with COVID-19. Now, although... It's been reported on more than it's actually happened. Uh, I think there are people that are generally afraid of uh, rioters that are potentially coming for their small business, their livelihood. So I think Trump could definitely win on that message. Not that I think he's doing the right thing in any manner, but I think it's definitely a message that could resonate the American people. But I do think, personally, law and order is like a dog whistle usually a term just makes you associate with like we need more cops on the streets we need more more people arrested and in jail in some ways to me with like the 1968 comparison uh in some ways biden is closer to nixon in terms of like the reason that nixon got elected right oh true biden is a former vice president And I think a lot of people right now, what they're craving is a return to normalcy like we had under the Obama administration. So I think there's a scenario in which um, the current situation helps. I mean, Trump got to say four years ago, government isn't working for you. I can fix it. But now he is the government and he doesn't get to be the challenger anymore. And the challenger always benefits, um, right? But one. Yeah. Although one thing about Biden, though, is I think aspects of the left and uh, maybe even like some moderates too, they can't really see him as a purist because going back to when he was in the United States Senate, he voted for um, the crime bill in the 1990s, which allowed for greater use of police force against suspects and uh, heavily militarized the police and put thousands of more police on the streets. So that's why a lot of people especially from the Sanders camp, are now supporting Howie Hawkins. Yeah, so, 
uh, mainly because of I Biden's I kind of want to ask, um, I mean, Eliza, you're definitely on the progressive side of the aisle in terms of Democrats. Um, is this whole, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, all this outrage, are people who are on the fence of whether or not to support Biden, like the former Bernie supporters, is this, is this motivating them to support Biden or is it not really having an effect? I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I, um, I, I don't know, but I think that a lot of, there are definitely some people that were already not going to vote for Biden because they disagree with his record. And um, so I think that those people had already made their decision. Um, but I think that there are definitely some people that also strongly disagree with him and his record um, and will be challenging him uh, every single day if he does, in fact, get into office. But I think that they ultimately recognize that Donald Trump is such a threat um, that that they need to do everything they can to get rid of him. And Joe Biden's the only person who can beat him at this point. But, um, yeah, so... I mean, I don't know how the dynamic of the 2020 election will play out. It's like, Griffin, you were mentioning all these factors. We have like a recession, we have a pandemic, we have a racial justice, you know, movement. And like all of these crazy factors would be hurting any incumbent president. But Donald Trump thrives on this, right? And Donald Trump loves the chaos and he loves spinning the chaos to say that he can fix it all and that he will bring us back from this, you know, time of uncertainty in every aspect. So I mean, with any other president, they'd be odds on favorites to lose in a landslide. But Donald Trump is Donald Trump, and who knows what will happen and what the conversation is going to look like. Well, you ever seen? Have you ever seen the movie V for Vendetta? I have not. It's a very good movie. I think it used to be on Netflix. Uh, isn't any longer. However, it's a very good movie. Definitely uh, must watch for our listeners and other members of the pod. But basically. V for Vendetta is about a revolution against sort of like a fascist dictatorship over in the United Kingdom. Uh, At one point, they do explain how the uh, dictator rose to power. And um, you notice some parallels. He thrived on the politics of fear because there was civil unrest. There was a pandemic that was occurring. And he was a, a leader with very little regard for political process. Now, I'm not saying that Trump is going to become a dictator, although I definitely think that sending in the military to use violence against your own people, like, I mean, this is like the Boston Massacre that could happen. I think that's a little dictatory, but he is thriving on the politics of fear, which in the long run won't yield positive results. Right. Who knows whether this will just crash or burn and or Donald Trump will do the impossible again and win. But yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated to see how this plays out these last five months. And, you know, we got a long way to go. And I don't suspect that the conversation around Black Lives Matter and this movement is going to kind of fizzle out in a week. I think that's going to be an issue that's, you know, pertinent right up to Election Day. And it's going to be one of the people, one of the issues that all the voters will be voting on, on November 3rd. So, um, yeah, I mean, overall, if anyone has any other thoughts, we can discuss them now. But I think that, for the most part, we've wrapped up, I think. And, um, yeah, sure. So, I just have uh, one quick comment. I mean, obviously, I I, uh, don't know what it's like to face the 
injustices of people in the African-American community. And I think a lot of our listeners are in that kind of position. And I think uh, I'd encourage everyone to go to um, blacklivesmatters.card.co for ways that you can contribute to stopping yeah i've seen that link go around it's definitely a good database for ways to sign petitions and do more but um yeah so all of our listeners definitely uh you know this is your political society you can rise up to the occasion and make a difference through this troubling time right so overall like we hope we've had a good illuminating conversation on what needs to be done federally and locally but so much of this you know relies on you to make change and you to you know help um you know turn the tide on this terrible systemic racism in every department of our institutions in this country so yeah uh hopefully uh this situation gets better but i'm glad that if anything i think it any- is getting better i mean there have been some reforms that have been adopted and even like the establishment is changing you look at congressman steve king who is a basically a white supremacist in Congress from Iowa, he got knocked out uh, in a primary by a Republican, more moderate challenger. There's also a uh, progressive candidate that beat um, Valerie Plame over in uh, New Mexico. So New Mexico is going to have now, from the looks of it, a progressive uh, champion, probably joining the squad, um, who will without a doubt, be strongly against police brutality and for progressive causes. So I think a wave of change is Hopefully definitely it continues. coming. So to all our listeners, uh, have a great day. I hope this time of uncertainty goes well for all of you. Uh, rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. That would be great. And uh, thanks, guys, for recording. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Henry. Bye.